1. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 10. A new sermon series warrants some new graphic design, and so I had a little fun making uh, this image that we'll be seeing during the series that will take us to the end of the year in First and Second Thessalonians. So um, planning my sermons out for the rest of the year, it works out quite, quite well, where uh, just as the year 2023 is wrapping up, we'll be concluding the letter, the second letter that the Apostle Paul sent to the, Thessal- the Thessalonian church. <laughs> Sorry. And um, I encourage you to open your Bibles. We're going to read through all of the first chapter of First Thessalonians. And um, as I often do in starting a series, I want to give you a little bit more background information before we get to our text. And the purpose isn't so much uh, that you would just learn some trivia, but that we would understand well the passage that we read. So you would rightly wonder what's happening in this church that Paul is writing to. What's the church like? What's the situation? Uh, the theological term, what is the sitzim leben? What is the surrounding cultural issue that Paul is writing and addressing in Thessalonica, or if you were to go to Greece today, it would be called Thessaloniki. So Thessalonica was and is a bustling city, a large city. In fact, I learned this week, I didn't even know this, Thessalonica is the second largest city in Greece. So was a very important city. Um, It is today and was during Paul's day as well because of its location and because the city also had a reputation for loyalty to the Roman government, and that often meant that um, all of this tax money that people paid into the Roman government would be sort of siphoned towards cities and rulers where there was loyalty paid, homage paid towards the Roman authorities. And that was the case in the Apostle Paul's day. And much like today, an ancient city was a crossroads of business, a crossroads of ideas, a place where there was a great mixing of religious beliefs as well. And um, you can see that there's, I mean, I just look at that picture and I think it it looks like a bustling city. I mean, uh, you could hardly even tell where one building starts and the next one begins. Um, and, And this would have been the case also in Paul's day where a bustling city would have been a place um, of wealth and a place of competing religious ideas, a, a city with many idols and temples, and we'll hear reference to that in the passage that we read today. So while scholars don't know a whole lot about the religious practices of the Thessalonians in Paul's day, we can be sure that a city that was so influential, so large, and so wealthy would have been a place where there would have been a lot of idolatry at work as well. Various cults and sects that are sort of competing for people's attention, adherence, and and even, quite frankly, just their money. So in Acts 17, uh, we learned uh, several, several months ago as I preached through Acts that the Apostle Paul was on a missionary journey with Silas when he went through this city of Thessalonica. And the typical events unfolded as Paul went into the city. Uh, maybe some trivia here. Does anyone know the first place he would go when he went into the city? Um, the synagogue. That's right, Jerry. He would find the synagogue 
which there was one in Thessalonica. So this shows there is at least um, a, some sort of significant Jewish population, enough to have a synagogue in the city. And so the Apostle Paul would go to the synagogue and teach there. And um, as was often the case, some people listened, some received the message of the gospel with open ears, open minds, open hearts. The Lord did a work of transformation in their lives as they believed the gospel, became Christians. But then at the very same time, there were some who didn't appreciate Paul's message and um, the Jewish population, uh, the Jewish authorities uh, recognized Paul poses a threat to their religious authority. And so they run Paul and his missionary friends out of town. And Scholars don't know exactly how long the Apostle Paul would have stayed in Thessalonica, but it was almost certainly a very short time. In Acts chapter 17, it says that Paul preached there for three Lord's Days in a row, three Sabbaths in a row, so he was there for at least three weeks. But then in the commentaries that I read, it's very likely that that was probably the extent almost of his whole stay in Thessalonica. So imagine having a pastor for four weeks before he has to move on to the next town. It would be um, difficult for Paul and Silas having this, this infant congregation that they care about, that they love, and are kind of just give them this deposit of truth of the gospel and then are run out of town. And that's part of the reason that Paul is writing this letter. He wants to get reconnected with the people of Thessalonica because he, he longs to be with them again. He wants to teach them, to minister to them, and it, it, again, it's very likely that he was only there for about a month's time. And so I share that background information because we need to remember as we read this book that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who are the authors of the book, are writing to a church that is in this, this difficult context. It's a, a place of great spiritual turbulence and temptation, and it's an infant Christian congregation. It's a it's a difficult scenario, and so we might be wondering, how were things going in Thessalonica when the Apostle Paul is writing to them? I mean, how are they doing with this temptation and struggle surrounding them? And the answer is that they were actually doing quite well. This is going to be an encouraging letter that the Apostle Paul sends to the believers in Thessalonica. And we'll find that Paul is so thankful, that's a word that we'll hear um, in our passage today and throughout these letters, thankful for what the Lord is doing among a people who are trusting in Jesus against the tide of culture. And that's the main reason that I preach these letters to our church here at Ammon Valley. Like the church in Thessalonica, I believe we're standing firm on Christ despite the voices that are around us. And so I'm excited to unpack the truths that we find in First and Second Thessalonians because I believe these words apply quite well to our own local congregation. Where there are struggles, there's room for improvement. We need to grow in our knowledge, in our hope, in our, our faith in Jesus. But at the same time, the Spirit is doing great things, revealing that, that God has chosen people here for salvation and for service to the Lord. So, like the congregation in Thessalonica, I, I believe that we're a healthy church that has room for improvement, like every church does. And so we need encouragement to continue in faith, in hope, and in love. And we'll find those words in 
our passage tonight. Having already prayed that the Lord bless the reading of his word, let's look now at 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, if you uh, subtract a few letters, it's Silas, so that's the Latin version of Silas's name. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we, approve, we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So uh, Thessalonica was and remains this major city in this region of Macedonia. So it's sort of the, the capital city, in a way, of the region. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we're starting this letter, we might take for granted that the letter is written to a church. So looking at the opening verse of 1 Thessalonians 2 the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul sends the greeting of grace and peace to the church. Our modern minds would read a greeting like that and easily skip past it, thinking almost, well, of course it was written to a church. Who else would it have gone to? We see that there are churches in every town in this country, and so why would an ancient city be any different? We can assume certain things of the biblical culture that are inaccurate because of the culture that we are so saturated by. Especially for pagan people. Or there, but these, uh, this situation was not exactly the case. Where Paul was going, there had to be new churches springing up because the Christian faith, the Christian gospel was new to all of these different people who are hearing it for the first time. And so there are churches today in every town and country, but in this day, it was really special that there was a church, a gathering of people who were called out of the world and into the kingdom of God in Thessalonica. For pagan people in this culture, the concept of a community of believers would have been kind of a new idea. And again, that sounds a little bit strange because in our culture, 
communities quickly form around religious ideas. But in this culture, there was often a separation between the activities of religion, going to the temple, and then having your own other social groups that you sort of would, would fall in line with. And so an idea of a community of believers, a church, would have been kind of a new concept for the Thessalonican people, except perhaps for the Jewish people who were living there. After all, there were Jews living in the city. There was a synagogue there. And they would have been gathering in that synagogue. That's what the word synagogue means, is gathering, by the way. But even for them, uh, their gatherings had a spiritual nature, but also certainly would have had an ethnic and kind of national nature to them as well. And so sometimes those spiritual and ethnic lines can get a little bit blurred. And so even for the Jewish people, their gatherings were not only religious, but their common ethnicity was also a factor in meeting together. So Christianity comes along, and it is different than any of the other faiths of the ancient world because a church is a gathering of people from various walks of life, from various ethnicities, who are united in Christ, who are united through a common creed, a common belief. The church was not united by ethnicity or social status, but by faith in Jesus. And again, that sounds so normal in our 21st century context, but it was revolutionary in the ancient world. Here's how the commentator C.A. Wanamaker puts the situation in Thessalonica. He wonderfully describes it, saying, This was the cardinal advantage that the church enjoyed over its religious competitors in the Roman world which, with the exception of Judaism, did not generally organize adherence into religious communities. So again, there's the separation of what you do at the temple and then the community that you live in, uh, typically in the pagan world. But the communal character of Christianity provided the context in which converts were re-socialized from the pagan or exclusively Jewish worlds to the new Christian world with its distinctive sets of beliefs and values. And so when Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica, he's writing to a people who are longing to know what their community is going to be built around. In Thessalonica, to become a Christian wasn't just to believe in Jesus, but it was to enter into a fellowship that was distinct from the surrounding culture. It was distinct and sometimes um, opposite in terms of values to the surrounding culture. In the church, you are going to find people of diverse backgrounds united around those same beliefs, and and Paul is, is encouraging them to be moving in a direction towards Christ together. So these people are united in love for God. They're united in love for each other, and there's this community of believers there that is flourishing The distinctiveness of the church from Greek culture was a blessing to these people. Their lives would have been blessed as they lived together. But the distinctiveness of the Christian life would have also created some complicated situations for people who were receiving this letter as well. Becoming a Christian in that day and still today has the positive element of receiving the blessing of forgiveness of sins through Christ, receiving life in Jesus' name, having a family, a spiritual family to belong to, all wonderful blessings. 
But at the same time, there's also this call to leave, a call to be distinct from many things that you see in the culture that you know are against the will of God. So as you're seeking union with God, which is a good thing, that also calls us to to die to the things of this world. And that's going to be a theme throughout um, these letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, is encouraging them towards faith and hope and love, while also letting go of the world around them. That departure from the surrounding culture could be a little bit lost on those of us who were born and raised in the church in America. This call to be distinct and set apart could sound a little bit strange because um, I'm sure many people just grow up and this is the, the water that we swim in. And so many Christian people around, people who mean us well, people who are trustworthy in business, people even who would directly encourage our faith. And this is so much of our experience living, especially in a town like Ripon, which is so um, richly blessed by so many Christian citizens. But we too are set apart from non-believers through faith and through our identification with the community of God's people. We're called to be distinct, to enjoy all the benefits of being a Christian, and also we're called to embrace all the challenges of life as a Christian in a culture that is often set against the kingdom of God. And so, how do we do this? We need guidance. Paul recognizes that the Thessalonian church needed a pastor, needed a a letter from Paul, Silas, and Timothy so that they would know how to distinguish themselves from the surrounding culture. These people need to be taught, need to be raised up in the faith. And so this upstart church in Thessalonica, whose first pastor was only there for probably about a month, is being kept by God and is holding on to the gospel. And the Apostle Paul says, I want to feed that and support that and help guard you. We heard the teaching several weeks ago of the Heidelberg Catechism on the Holy Catholic Church. And it's worth repeating in this context of the Thessalonian Church that this description of the Holy Catholic Church certainly applies very precisely to what was happening in Thessalonica in Paul's day. The Catechism teaches that I believe that the Son of God through His Spirit and Word out of the entire human race from the beginning of the world to its end gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community of chosen who are chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. That's so many words there that could be pulled right directly from the first chapter of Thessalonians. That the Spirit is, is gathering protecting and preserving a community chosen for eternal life. And that's happening in Thessalonica. So, shifting now from the overall situation to the particular passage that we just read, we need to remember one main word as Paul is introducing his letter. That word is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Paul gives thanks because he knows God has chosen these people for salvation. And that could sound like flattery, but he gives reasons why he can see and he believes that these people have been set apart from those in the world for salvation through Jesus Christ. Paul isn't just 
give, offering flattery to these people in this church, but he's going to give some reasons for his confidence in their election. And so let's consider why Paul is confident of their election and ask if the same could be true of our church here at Ammon Valley. Reading verses 2 through 5 again. The words will be on the screen, basically the rest of the sermon almost. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, here are the things he's giving thanks for, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So he says, we know God has chosen you because your work of faith. Notice the underlined words. Your work of faith reveals and gives evidence to God's election of the people in this church. Work of faith. Those are words that often are regarded by people today as opposites, almost. There's works and there's faith. And in the Reformed Church, we pride ourselves on being sola fide, that we have a salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone. And if we're not careful, it could sound like it is independent of any works that God would prompt us to do. So, these are two words that are often regarded as opposites, but Paul so skillfully puts them together. Some people believe that salvation by faith alone is disconnected from an obedient life in which we are called to work out our faith, as he writes in another place, with fear and trembling. Like the Apostle James Paul teaches in this great little phrase that real faith in Christ, the faith of the elect, will result in works, will result in activity. Real faith in Jesus will prompt people to serve Christ in all kinds of practical, real-life ways. Work that is pleasing to God is motivated by faith in Christ. So like Paul wrote to the Thessalonian believers, I give thanks to God personally for the work of faith that is abundant in our congregation here. And so I can say very honestly to the congregation, those gathered here, and even just in general for those who aren't here as well today, that I see Jesus working through his word and spirit among so many people when people work, serve, are active in living a Christian life in this congregation. And we give thanks for it, like Paul. Faith in Jesus is prompting people to worship. Sometimes we can take that for granted, can't we? We just go to church on Sunday. (laughs) It's part of the routine, part of the good rhythm that we've built into our lives. But this is a work of faith to go and worship God. A work of faith to to sacrifice a small thing, a day of the week, to gain a great thing, that is, rest in the presence of God, reminders of the gospel, teaching in the word of God, fellowship with one another. This work of faith is evidence of our election. 
I see in this congregation the work of faith where people study the Bible together. I hear often from grieving people in our church about the work of faith where people write cards to encourage someone who is, has just had a loss in their family or has gone through a difficult thing like a surgery. I've seen many times in our church the work of faith who are striving to feed the poor or to teach children the Word of God. That's the work of faith which the Spirit produces among God's elect in the church. And where it's happening, we can be assured that God is really present among us. So, the first thing Paul gives thanks for, the work of faith, is followed by labor of love. And that labor of love has become a cliche in our modern parlance, in our vocabulary. In, in English, a labor of love is often, often associated with kind of a thankless task, something mundane or menial. It's a labor of love for you to pick up trash that you see on the side of the road, or it's a labor of love to organize your grandma's National Geographic magazines, right? It's just sort of this thing that you, you love someone, and so you find some way to keep yourself busy, and it, it's a, a labor of love to, to do this thing that is maybe a little bit mundane and, and kind of bordering on mean, meaninglessness. But Paul's word for labor uh, isn't, isn't pushing us to think that they're doing these things that are obscure or mundane, but his word for labor is actually focusing on how difficult their work is. It's a strong um, noun about the difficulty of the work that they're doing. So the labor has more to do with difficulty than with the thanklessness or, mon- or mundaneness of the task. So he's saying because they're so full of love, they're doing hard work in Christ's name in Thessalonica. After all, we know Jesus' ministry was not an easy ministry. It was a labor of love, and it was hard work. Um, The scriptures tell us that Jesus would often withdraw to a solitary place. That wasn't just to be with his Father, but it was because he needed times of rest to continue in the hard work of proclaiming the kingdom of God, of following the Father's will, of preparing to go to the cross. And so Christian work, Christian labor is, is often difficult. Jesus' ministry was not easy, and, and the Christian can expect that at times our ministry will require great love, great patience, great steadfastness in the work that we do. There's a, a book for young people that was popular a little while ago. I don't know how popular it is anymore, but um, I, I know youth pastors would often give this book to graduating students. The book was called Do Hard Things. And the subtitle is wonderful. A Teenage Rebellion Against Low Expectations. (laughs) Do hard things. That's what this labor of love should make us think about. Christians doing hard things. Things that will require the fruit of the Spirit for us to continue. Which The first of which is love that we would have love, the joy of God's salvation, um, that we would have a peace that would endure through difficult work. And, and this is happening in the Thessalonican church where people are showing themselves to be among God's chosen people because they're doing hard things, hard work, out of um, a heart full of love. 
I give thanks to God always for you, remembering before our God and Father your labor of love. In the 1500s, the English reformer Hugh Latimer believed that love should be added to the true marks of the church. Maybe those who are very well steeped in Reformed theology would know that there are three marks of the church in the Belgic Confession. The first mark being the preaching of the true gospel, the second being the right celebration of the sacraments, the third being the practice of Christian discipline. And so um, it was regarded that these even remain still today very good ways of establishing what is a true church from um, a, a congregation that is, is not genuine, but is Christian in name only or church in name only. Again, preaching, sacraments, church discipline. Hugh Latimer comes along in England in the 1500s and say, we should add love to that list. That a church should be a place where there is evident charity, mercy, grace, not just being received by God among the people of the church, but shown to one another. And um, far be it from me to disagree with the Belgic Confession at all, but I, I think that it, it's wrapped up in the pure preaching of the gospel, the call to love our neighbor, and our participation in the sacraments, and the practice of church discipline. But, but I think that Hugh Latimer offered a helpful critique where love is a mark of a true church. Is there love in our church? I hope so. I think there is. I'll always say um, to people, probably the greatest thing our church does, and this sounds strange, outside of weekly worship, which is so rich and full of life, is the funerals that happen here and the meal that occurs afterwards where people, this just happened with Jonathan Lee's passing, people are gathered into the sanctuary for something that they probably expect to happen, singing, praying, hearing the Bible, hearing remembrances of someone's life. And then this very countercultural thing happens where people enter into the social hall and share a meal together and without fail, every time, I walk into that social hall and I can feel the love in that room. A labor of love. It's hard work for people who are grieving, often very sad situations like Jonathan Lee's passing, to prepare a meal. And it could even feel like a labor of love to walk through those doors and go and participate in that meal, even though it's something that's so good for us. It can feel like a labor of love to, to go in and, and then walking away Personally, I can absolutely say, wow, that was good for me to see people loving one another, to, to just be encouraged by the fellowship that the Spirit is producing in our community. So I would agree with John Lat or Hugh Latimer that, that charity, love, is a mark of a chosen church, a church set apart from the surrounding culture, right, where communities are bound by all sorts of things, but rarely would you have love at the center of the purpose of a community. In order to be this kind of church, it, we will have to work hard. In order to be this kind of church, speaking more broadly in the world, the church universal will have to continue working hard. 
And so we can think of a labor of love as translating the Bible. Isn't that hard work? Just arduous work, difficult work. I ran into someone um, not too long ago who asked me about my last name, Van Dyke, because this man had done a lot of ministry in the Muslim world. And uh, nobody that I'm related to, but somebody with the last name Van Dyke translated the Bible into Arabic. And that remains one of the best translations of the scriptures, even to this day. A very faithful um, understanding of the scriptures and of the Arabic language. And when this man, this missionary, died, he, he died in almost, pure, almost obscurity, having very, seen very few converts in his ministry. But he did this labor of love, this hard work, translating the Bible, and now millions of people in the Middle East have a good translation to read of the Word of God. This labor of love will include taking care of children, which is hard work. This labor of love will include staying in relationships and loving someone towards Jesus. It's a sign of our election when that love is present in our churches and in our families. Thirdly, as we start to wrap up, Paul is thankful for the Thessalonians' steadfastness of hope. We'll see that this is the theme throughout Paul's two letters of Thessalonians, where their, their love for the Lord is evident, their faith is strong, and they need more knowledge of what they should be hoping for. And so um, they can see clearly what God has done in Christ. They believe the gospel, and they're hopeful also for what God will do. But Paul is going to give lots of teaching here about what the Christian is specifically hoping for, particularly in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. So we'll see reference, or we already did, in verse 10 of our text where, where Paul says the Thessalonian church is called to wait for the Son, to wait for Jesus from heaven, to wait in hope for him who, raised, who was raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so this hope is also mixed with knowledge of, of the judgment. So while there will be a final judgment, the Christian can be hopeful because we're waiting for Jesus who is raised from the dead who will deliver us from the wrath to come. It can be hard for people who labor and strive to also be people who are good at waiting. The Christian, though, needs to find this balance of of working and of waiting. To use more alliteration, the Christian is both productive and patient. The Christian has faith in Christ and also hope in Christ that is steadfast, that lasts despite the discouragements that we could face. So, what effect does this church have, this good church in Thessalonica? There's a phrase in the middle of verse 8 where Paul says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. That would be a good thing, a good goal for our church. That through the work of the Spirit, Our faith in God goes forth far beyond the walls of this sanctuary, far beyond 333 South Wilma, that that the gospel of Christ goes forth everywhere as a result of a good little church in Ripon. God chose those believers in Thessalonica for salvation, 
and not only for their sake, but, but he chose them for a, a work of service, making his name known to other congregations that need an example of how to follow Jesus against the tides of culture. Now, I'm excited to walk through these great letters with you in the coming weeks so that faith in God, the faith in God that the members of this church have, will go forth everywhere. That we would be an example of faith and love and hope in Jesus Christ. A good church in God's care can inspire people throughout the whole world even to trust in Jesus. And that's the goal of our fellowship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.